Chapter Fourteen of the Drums of Jeopardy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Drums of Jeopardy by Harold McGrath. Chapter Fourteen. For a long time, Cuddy sat perfectly motionless his pipe at an upward angle, a fine commentary on the strength of his jaws, and his gaze boring into the shadows beyond his desk. What was uppermost in his thoughts now was the fateful twist of events that had brought the young man to the assured haven of this towering loft. All based, singularly enough, upon his wanting to see Molly's girl for a few moments, and thus he had established himself in Kitty's thoughts. Instead of turning to the police, she had turned to him, Old Cuddy, reaching around vaguely for something to stay the current age, hoping by seeing this living link twixt the present and the past to stay the afterglow of youth, as if that could be done, he who had never paid any attention to gray hairs and wrinkles and time, all at once found himself in a position similar to that of the man who supposes he has an inexhaustible sum at the bank and has just been notified that he has overdrawn. Cuddy knew that life wasn't really coordination and premeditation so much as it was coincident. Trivials. Nothing was absolute and dependable but death. Between birth and death, a series of accidents and incidents and coincidence which men called life. He tapped his pipe on the ashtray and stood up. He gathered the chrysophrase and restored the stones to the canvas bag. Then he carefully stacked the photographs and carried them to the portfolio. The green stones he deposited in a safe, from which he took a considerable bundle of small notebooks, returning to the desk with these. Denature dynamite, these notebooks, full of political secrets, solutions of mysteries that baffle historians. A truly great journalist never writes history as a historian. He is afraid to. Sometimes conjecture is safer than fact, and these little notebooks were the repository of suppressed facts ranging over twenty-odd years. Gerald Stanley Lee would have recognized them instantly as coming under the head of what he calls shh. An hour later, Cuddy returned the notebooks to their abiding place, his memory refreshed. The poor devil, a dissolute father and uncle, desolate forebears, corrupt blood weakened by intermarriage, what hope was there? Only one, the rich, fiery blood of the Calabrian mother. But why had the chap come to America? Why not England or the Riviera, where rank, even if shorn of its prerogatives, is still treated respectfully? But America? Cuddy's head went up. Perhaps that was it. To barter his phantom greatness for money to dazzle some rich fool of an American girl. In that case, Karloff would be welcome. But wait a moment. The chap had come in from the West. In that event, there should be an odyssey of some kind tucked away in the affair. Cuddy resumed his pacing. The moment his imagination caught the essentials, he visualized the odyssey. Across mountains and deserts, rivers and seas, he followed two hawks in fancy, pursued by an implacable hatred, more or less historical, 
of which the lad was less a cause than an abstract object. And Karlov, Cutty understood Karlov now, always span near, his hate re-energizing his faltering feet. There was evidently some iron in this two hawks's blood. Fear never would have carried him thus far. Fear would have whispered, Futility! Futility! And he would have bent his head to the stroke. So then there was resource and there was courage. And he lay in yonder room, beaten and penniless. The top piece in the grim irony to have come all these thousands of miles unscathed, to be dropped at the goal. But America? Well, that would be solved later. By the Lord Harry! Cutty stopped and struck his hands together. The drums! From the hour Kitty had pronounced the name, Stephanie Gregor, an idea had taken lodgment, an irrepressible idea that somewhere in this drama would be the drums of jeopardy. The mark of the thong, never any doubt of it now. Those magnificent emeralds were here in New York, the mob, the Red Guard, hammering on the doors, what would have been Two Hawks's most natural first thought? To gather what treasures the hand could be laid to and flee, here in New York and in Karloff's hands, ultimately to be cut up for Bolshevik propaganda. The infernal pity of it! The passion of the gem-hunter blazed forth dimming all other phases of the drama. Here was a real game, a man's game, a sport. Cuddy rubbed his hands together pleasurably. To recover those green flames before they could be broken up, under the ancient ruling that findings is keepings. The stones, of course, meant nothing to Karloff beyond the monetary value, and upon this fact Cuddy began developing a plan. He stood ready to buy the, those stones if he could draw them into the open. Lord, how he wanted them! Murder and loot, always murder and loot. The thought of those two incomparable emeralds being broken up distressed him profoundly. He must act at once, before the desecration could be consummated. Two hawks, Hawksley hereafter, for the sake of convenience, had an equity in the gems, but what of that? In smuggling them in, and how the deuce had he done it? He had thrown away his legal right to them. Cuddy kneaded his conscience into a satisfactory condition of quiescence and went on with his planning. If he succeeded in recovering the stones and his conscience bit a little too deeply for comfort, why, he could pay over to Hawksley twenty per cent of the price Karloff demanded. He could take it or leave it. In a case like this, to a bachelor without dependents, money was no object. All his life he had wanted a fine emerald to play with, and here was an opportunity to acquire two. If this plan failed to draw Karloff into the open, then every jeweler and pawnbroker in town would be notified and warned. What with the Secret Service operatives and the agents of the Department of Justice on the watch for Karloff, who would recognize his limitations of mobility? It was reasonable to assume that the Bolshevik would be only too glad to dicker secretly for the disposal of the stones. Now to work. Cuddy looked at his watch. Nearly midnight. Rather late, but he knew all the tricks of this particular kind of game. If the advertisement appeared isolated, all the better. The real job would be to hide his identity. He saw a way round this difficulty. He wrote out six advertisements all worded the same. He figured out the cost, and was delighted to find that he carried the necessary currency. 
Then he got into his engineer's dungarees, touched up his face and hands to the required griminess, and sallied forth. Luck attended him until he reached the last morning newspaper on the list. Here he was obliged to proceed to the city room, a risky business. A queer advertisement coming into the city room late at night was always pried into, as he knew from experience. Still, he felt that he ought not to miss any chance to reach Karloff. He explained his business to the sleepy gate-boy who carried the advertisement and the cash to the Night City editor's desk. Ordinarily, the Night City editor would have returned the advertisement with the crisp information that he had no authority to accept advertisements. But the drums of jeopardy caught his attention, and he sent a keen glance across the busy room to the rail where Cuddy stood, perhaps conspicuously. Hmm. He called to one of the reporters. This looks like a story. I'll run it. Follow that guy in the overalls and see what's in it. Cuddy appreciated the interlude for what it was worth. Someone was going to follow him. When the gate boy returned to notify him that the advertisement had been accepted, Cuddy went down to the street. "'Hey there, just a moment,' hailed the reporter. "'I want a word with you about that advertisement.' Cuddy came to a standstill. "'I paid for it, didn't I?' "'Sure, but what's this about the drums of jeopardy?' Two great emeralds I'm hunting for,' explained Cutty, recalling the man who stood on London Bridge and peddled sovereigns at two bits each, and no buyer. "'Can it, can it,' jeered the reporter. "'Be a good sport and give us a tip. Strike call among the city engineers? I'm telling you, like Mike you are.' "'All right. It's the word to type the surface lines, like Newark, if you want to know. Now get the hell out of here before I hand you one on the jaw.' The reporter backed away. Is that on the level? Call up the barns and find out. They'll tell you what's on. And listen, if you follow me, I'll break your head. On your way. The reporter dashed for the elevator and back to the doorway in time to see Cuddy legging it for the subway. As he was a reporter of the first class, he managed to catch the same express uptown. On the way uptown, Cuddy considered that he had accomplished a shrewd bit of work. Karloff or one of his agents would certainly see that advertisement, and even if Karloff suspected a federal trap, he would find some means of communicating with the issuer of the advertisement. The thought of Kitty returned. What the dickens would she say? How would she act when she learned who this Hawksley was? He fervently hoped that she had never read Thaddeus of Warsaw. There would be all the difference in the world between an elegant refugee pole and a derelict of the Russian autocracy. Perhaps the best course to pursue would be to say nothing at all to her about the amazing discovery. Upon leaving Elevator 4, Cuddy said, Bob, I've been followed by a sharp reporter. Shear him off with any tale you please and go home. Good night. I'll fix him, sir. Cuddy took a bath, put on his lounging robe, and tiptoed to the threshold of the patient's room. The shaded light revealed the nurse asleep with a book on her knees. The patient's eyes were closed, and his breathing was regular. He was coming along. Cuddy decided to go to bed. Meantime, when the elevator touched the ground floor, the operator observed a prospective passenger. "'Last trip, sir. You'll have to take the stairs.' Where'll I find the engineer who went up with you just now? 
The man I took up? Gone to bed, I guess. What floor? Nothing doing, Bo. I'm wise. You're the fourth guy with a subpoena that's been after him. Nix. I'm not a lawyer's clerk. I'm a reporter, and I want to ask him a few questions. Gee, has that Jane of his been hauling in the newspapers? Good night. Tuddle along, Bo. There's nothing coming from me. Nix. Would ten dollars make you talk? Asked the reporter desperately. Yeah, about the Kaiser and his wood sawing. Bye-bye. The operator, secretly enjoying the reporter's discomfiture, shut off the lights, slammed the elevator door to the latch, and walked to the revolving doors to the tune of Gary Owen. The reporter did not follow him, but sat down on the first step of the marble stairs to think, for there was a lot to think about. He sensed clearly enough that all this talk about street railway strikes and subpoenas was rot. The elevator man and the engineer were in cahoots. There was a story here, but how to get to it was a puzzler. He had one chance in a hundred of landing it, tipped the mail clerk in the business office to keep an eye for open for the man who called for double C mail. Eventually the man who did call for that mail presented a card to the mail clerk. At the bottom of this card was the name of the chief of the United States Secret Service. And say to the reporter, who has probably asked to watch, hands off, understand? Absolutely off. When the reporter was informed, he blew a kiss into air and sought his city editor for his regular assignment. He understood, with the wisdom of his calling, that one didn't go whale-fishing with trout rods. End of chapter 14